Exodus chapter 20, verse 14. And 14 only. Exodus chapter 20, verse 14. You shall not commit adultery. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your, your word that we are able to pray it and to sing it, to read it in a language that we know, uh, and that we are able to unpack it together and sit under it. So, Father, as we wrestle and hear your word, would we be challenged and convicted? Would we be led faithfully by your word, by your law as a tutor, as a guardian, would your law and the Spirit's hand bring us to Jesus, uh, bring us to the perfect righteousness of Christ, bring us to his shed blood for us sinners? Would we uh, be challenged by your word, but also be rejoicing in Christ our Savior and be empowered for obedience? Would we see that trajectory in your law and the Ten Commandments, uh, that we would be led from conviction to Christ and redemption and to empowered obedience for your glory. So God, would you help us? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you shall not commit adultery is pretty straightforward, right? Uh, and this goes, goes forth for many of, most of, uh, the Ten Commandments, right? So since we're, we're all kind of reconvening, and, and I, don't, I don't know who's been watching online, who's been tracking things, and so I'll, I'll give kind of a brief overview of the Ten Commandments. Uh, we are approaching the Ten Commandments as a communication of the moral law of God. And when you look at the Old Testament, and this is really important, by the way, in our present culture, and I don't want to take all of our time here, but when you look at the law of God in the Old Testament, uh, perhaps you've had a conversation with someone who said, well, God's law forbids that behavior. God condemns this. He condemns adultery. He condemns homosexuality. He condemns transgenderism. He, conde- he condemns these things in the law. But they come back and say, well, are you wear- do you eat shellfish or do you wear clothes that are of mixed fabrics? Because those are also described in places like Leviticus 18 and 19 as being condemned under the law of God. And what that betrays is that while they have been exposed to some verses in the Bible, they don't actually understand what they're talking about. But the, the fearful reality is that Christians don't usually either. Uh, because we usually, if that were to come back at you, you say, well, I don't know what to do with that. You know, it, 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 it does say that. So maybe, maybe these things are okay. Uh, we're deep down, as, as we know and as that person knows, because this moral law of God is not created and doesn't show up first in Exodus chapter 20, uh, but that Paul talks about the law being written upon the heart of every man and woman in Romans chapter 2, that part of the image of God is that we are people made with an implanted understanding, if you will, an innate idea of the law of God. Now, Fall in humanity, that, that sense is corrupted, but it's unavoidable. And because it's unavoidable, you could go across culturals, cultures for the most part, uh, from Judeo-Christian cultures, based cultures, to more uh, other, other religions or simply secular or pagan cultures, and you would see tidbits of this moral law that most cultures... Uh, particularly in the 21st century, they have a, have a stipulation in their law about murder. 
that you shouldn't murder other people. Uh, you can you can find it most most places. Now they're they might they might be a little bit more lenient than we are in America about uh, what exactly is murder and not murder. What is ex- what's sanctioned? But the but you can begin to see that there's a respect for human life even in those areas. Uh, but when you look at the law of God, it's it's helpful that you see the law of God in three pieces, uh, a threefold division of the law. And, um, yeah, threefold division, you have the moral law of God. And the moral law of God is something that is enduring and it is binding upon every man and woman who ever existed. Uh, that every man and woman is, is due worship towards God and love towards neighbor. This, as you think about the Ten Commandments, the best way to break it down, uh, commandments one through four, love God. Commandments... Uh, Right, or is it one through one and five through ten? Uh, love neighbor. So love towards God. First table, love towards neighbor. Second table, and every person is is duty bound to God, who is the creator of all people, uh, to live in such a way. So the moral law is binding because it is a reflection of the very character of God, His holiness, His standard. Now, when you look at the rest of the law, there are things that might be considered ceremonial law. And then things that are called civil or judicial laws. Uh, ceremonial laws would govern the ceremony or the, the religious worship of the old covenant people of Israel. This would Ceremonial laws would be laws about uh, sacrifice, for example, or laws surrounding the tabernacle or surrounding the temple. And those things are, and this is a big word, but they're abrogated. They're taken into Jesus, fulfilled and done away with, so that we are no longer... Uh, bound to the ceremonial worship life of Israel because that was wrapped up and summed up and fulfilled in Jesus. So we, we're not having to sacrifice anything. We're not having, uh, there's no holy of holies back there, right? We, we have access now. So our worship has changed because of what Christ has accomplished. And then there's the civil law or the judicial law. And the civil law and judicial law, if the ceremonial law governed the people of Israel as a worshiping community, the civil law governed the people of Israel as a political or a uh, society. So this is where you would have uh, laws about uh, here is this is what, how we punish certain things. So you, this is where you get all of the these people will be cut off and these people would be stoned. And, and the, the, while the details of the civil law are not in effect, sometimes the or best said the, the general equity or the moral principle that is present in them. And now I would have to kind of press into the law to unpack what exactly that means. And that's not where we are tonight. I kind of talked about that a few at the beginning of the Ten Commandments. But I want you to kind of see how we're dealing with the Ten Commandments. So we're dealing with the Ten Commandments as category one, as a part of the moral law of God. And some people um, kind of argue that, that that threefold division of the law is artificially placed on top of the Bible and obviously, I'm going to argue that it's not, because only the Ten Commandments are described as written by the very finger of God, where the rest of the Old Testament law is given to Moses, who then gives it to the people. And then you can see, as we will in a minute, how Jesus deals with the law, right? How Jesus deals with some of the ceremonial laws and how he deals with some of the civil laws. And, and, but particularly what we'll see tonight, an example of how he deals with the moral law, he doesn't do away with it, but in fact brings it to broader application.
Um, when in, in the Sermon on the Mount, right? You've heard it said, but I say to you. And what he, when he says, I say to you, he doesn't say that's done away with. But he's actually saying, let's, let's actually apply that more broadly than you have before. So that's a quick summary of the threefold division. That's a big conversation in, uh, in theological circles. But that's how we're approaching it, how I'm approaching it. Uh, <clears throat> so that, that threefold division. And then maybe another three is the threefold use of the law. And I alluded to this in my prayer, right? That the law reveals to us the standard of God, one. The law leads us to Jesus, leads us because it shows us the standard of God, shows us, reveals sin, brings us to Jesus, right? It is, Paul talks about the law being a tutor or a guardian or a, a, a pedagogos. It's a tutor, brings us to, to Jesus. Uh, and then, but there's a, the third piece of it is that the law instructs us, the moral law instructs us how to live. And so this law is now we are graciously enabled to have God above all else, right? To, you shall have no other gods before me. That should be a ap- first application of the Christian life. So anyways, um, as I said, the, the Ten Commandments show up on two tablets uh, or I always mess that up on two tables. Uh, I mentioned last week that oftentimes we think that when Moses came down on the mountain with two tablets in his hand, two stone tablets, uh, sometimes it has been assumed, and I'm, I would say wrongly, that on one side you had the first table right, of love God, and on the second one you had the second table of love your neighbor. Uh, but really, the way that old uh, treaties or covenants in the ancient Near East, the, the way that they were, they were cut the way that they were established is that there were two copies of the covenant. Both copies contained the entirety of the covenant. And there was a copy that was for the greater, if you will, the greater party, the greater king. And there was a copy that was for the lesser king or the, the vassal king. Uh, and in this case, Moses brings them both and he puts them into the Ark of the Covenant where God dwells amongst his people. So the copies are with God, with God and for the people. They're, they're all there. So there's two copies and they're, and they're, they're the same thing. There's, they're duplicates. Um, so, okay. Now, so we've we talked about the, the first table is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So it's really governing worship. Um, and the first table governs worship. The second table governs how we interact with our neighbors. But, but loving our neighbor is actually a means of loving God, right? We can't, uh, we can't separate the two. Everybody would love it if we just all love our neighbors, uh, the, all of the controversy of the Ten Commandments, I say all of the controversy, most of the controversy of the Ten Commandments resides in the first table. How do we understand commandment number two about images? How do we understand commandment number four about the Sabbath? Right? When you come down to Exodus the, the, you know, 12 through the um, 17, it gets pretty straightforward. Honor your father and mother. Most people are going to agree that that's a good thing to do. Um, you shall not murder. Most people are going to agree that that's a good thing not to do. Same for adultery or stealing or bearing false witness or coveting, not coveting your neighbor's house. That if we sim- simply went out into the world and said, all we're trying to do is just tell people not to murder each other. Right? Or we're all, all we're trying to do is tell people not to steal. Right, the, the world's going to have, they might have a problem with our attitude. They, might, they would definitely have a problem with our ethics because everybody breaks the commandments one way or another. Um, but they're not, they're, we're, Christians would not have the opposition right? because our first priority is propagating the worship of the true and living God. Um, talking about, can I tell you a quick story? 
Uh, when I lived in New Orleans, this is really, it just came to my mind. We had a, I'm not going to tell you the whole story because it might be offensive. Um, but there was a guy who was from the Ninth Ward. And if you know New Orleans, like the Ninth Ward, Lower Ninth Ward, Lower Ninth Ward, just typically a rough area. Rough, uh, impoverished, uh, lots of drugs and different things going on in that neighborhood. And this guy was from that neighborhood, and he uh, obviously invited us on a, to a graduation party uh, of a friend of his at her church. So we're like, yeah, you know, we go. So there was, there was him, and there's four or five of us, and we go to this church for a graduation party. And it was, it was terrific because it's like, you know, we love – one day we're going to have our, our spread of food down there again. But like in New Orleans, it's like um, – Red beans and rice and jambalaya and, you know, crawfish etouffee. But it's in these big things and you're just, you know, heaping, scooping it. It was beautiful. But on the way in, what was off-putting before we got inside was that this church was surrounded by a chain-link fence. And all throughout, like, interweaved in the chain-link fence, like, everywhere, on every single panel of this chain-link fence all the way around the church, all it said were these little papers that said, you shall not kill, thou shall not kill. And in my mind, I'm thinking, well, they must have, you know, like they're saying, making some statement about abortion or something, you know. And so I asked Joe, the guy who was from the neighborhood, he said, no, they're just telling people not to kill each other. Like, that's, that's where we were. And so I was, I was, as I was getting out of the car, I was like, I just want to get inside and get, <laughs> let me get my jambalaya and then let me go. Um, so anyways, <laughs> but you shall not murder is a, as, and as we saw last week, the Ten Commandments have, each commandment has a narrow application and a broad application. So last week we talked about uh, the narrow application of you shall not murder is you shall not unjustly take another person's life or you shall not negligently take another person's life. That in the Old Testament, in the law, there is a covering of, hey, there, there is a, I'm, I'm, I'm taking someone's life in malice. I'm meditating, premeditating this murder. I'm, I'm lashing out in anger, etc. But it also covers, the word there also covers the, um, the negligence, uh, unintentional negligence of, of taking life. So, uh, for example, you're swinging your axe and your axe head flies off and it hits some guy in the head. Like you, it's negligence. So it covers that as well. But, but the broad application is that the, the, the you shall not murder is a commandment that establishes the sanctity of all life. That you can, you can positivize, if you will, you can make this a positive statement and saying life is precious, all life is precious. And so that thread is picked up by the rest of the Bible. So there, there is a broad application to it. And we could apply that to honor your father and mother, etc., as, as I've done. So the same principle in play for you shall not commit adultery, right? The narrow application, the focused application is that the marriage covenant relationship is precious and ought not to be broken under any circumstances by stepping out, right? This is the, the ob- obvious narrow application of the law. Um, and it's something that uh, when, when we enter into, and this is, again, uh, when, when we enter into a marriage covenant, uh, we take, I don't know how you guys did it, uh, but we still ha- we took the vows and Sarah Beth put them in a frame and they put them, she put them on the end table at her house. So she's like, you don't forget, right? Um, you know, but, the, you know, I'm having you above all others and better and worse. And we did very traditional vows, but which you didn't have to. Um, 
But you make a vow. You're making a commitment before God in that, that you're making a commitment of monogamy. And, and maybe I can maybe apply another thing, another tactic that the, um, the, the cultural opponents of biblical truth will throw at you. Uh, that they will say that the Bible doesn't actually uh, argue for monogamy, right? One man, one woman. Uh, because you see characters in the Bible doing otherwise, right? You have Abraham. Abraham, Sarah, then Hagar, the, the slave, becomes the mother of Ishmael. You have um, Jacob with Leah and Rachel and then concubines on top of that. And then you have the super scandalous story of Judah and Tamar, his daughter-in-law who dresses up like a prostitute. And he goes off with her and that's how the, the lineage of Jude, Judah continues. He actually shows up. Tamar actually shows up in the genealogy of our Lord. Uh, so, so surely that those things are completely fine. Uh, see, dear ones, there's a difference between prescription and description. Just because something is recorded in the Bible is in a historical narrative, the Bible is not giving moral sanction to it. Just because the Bible talks about Jacob having two wives and two concubines, and that's how the 12 tribes of Israel come to be, it is not moral license to go and do likewise. Because, especially when we have clear instruction from the moral law of God to do otherwise. Okay? Uh, so that's just one, one example of, hey, these people have multiple wives here. These people do, they do these things. They go off and murder and they go off and kill. And surely, therefore, I can go be like Jacob. Um, not this Jacob, but that Jacob. <laughs> um, and so, again, the narrow application is that. But it's also, the, when you begin to press into the broad application of this, we begin to see that there's something special about the marriage relationship. Uh, it's something special about the marriage relationship. And again, this is uh, unfortunately controversial in our culture. Uh, I've even had, a, had pastors tell me, uh, that the Bible, that the idea of the nuclear family is something foreign to the Bible and that it shows up later in, uh, in like American culture. This idea of the nuclear family being a building block, not just of, of the family, the nuclear family, but also of society and elsewhere. And, and I, not only do I think that shows up in verse 12 with honor your father and your mother, that, that that idea of authority in the home bleeding into how we understand authority in the church and authority in the government or in the state. But we see it here also that the building block of the family is a marriage covenant relationship. And we, it, it's, it's here in the law and it's also creationally mandated. It's creationally shaped because we have at the beginning you have Adam and Eve. You have one man, one woman who are entering into a particular type of marriage relationship before God. <clears throat> and they're, you know, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, which is an interesting thought when you think about Adam. <laughs> He's leaving his, leaving his father in a sense. I don't, no, don't, don't push that too far. Um, <clears throat> but Paul picks up the idea in Ephesians chapter 5 as well, right, that I just read. But, so we see it in creation. We see it in the law. Um, but there is a special regard for faithfulness in marriage. Now, when we begin to press into this broad application, we say this relationship is superior to all other human relationships. It is the pinnacle of human relationship, human relationships. We are we are made for relationship because our existence is an overflow 
of the loving triuneness of the loving Trinity of God, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Don't press that too far either. But, but that fact that God exists eternally as Father, Son, Holy Spirit, perfectly loving, perfectly indwelling, perfectly expressing His glory, uh, overflows, right? There's no deficit in God. So that's, He's not trying to fill up something in Himself at creation. But as an overflow of His His superfluity of an overflow I don't have a better word over overflow of a surplus of love he has a he creates and when he creates he creates uh, fish and whatever animals and stars and all these other things but only people are described as being in God's image now what's interesting is I heard this recently and I think it's helpful that the beginning of the Christian worldview how we see things begins with a series of distinctions. I'm, I'm taking this from um, Al Mohler, if you're curious. I just heard it. But he, I mean, it's, it's something I knew, but he said it better. Uh, it begins with a series of distinctions, right? There's a distinction between the creator and the creature, or creator and the created. Uh, there's a distinction between humanity, or humans, and the rest of creation. And then there's a distinction between man and woman. All of those show up, by the way, in one verse in Genesis chapter 1, 26. So there's a distinction between creator and created. There's a distinction between humans and non-humans, right? Humanity and the rest of creation. And then there's a distinction between man and woman. And that all of those distinctions are, are foundational to a biblical worldview. And all of those distinctions are under assault in our world today. They've been under assault, but they are particularly under assault. All of those distinctions, distinction between creator and created, distinction between if you've ever seen one of those ASPCA, I love puppy dogs, but I'm like, I just give me a break. Oh, wears me out. I'm like, there are people out. Okay. Yeah, I'm like, they're fine. Just give, give them some Alpo and they're, they're good. Oh, yeah. And I'm, I'm, not, I'm not minimizing the, that animals matter, right? Animals matter in God's economy. But when we, when we begin to level out that people matter on the same level as puppy dogs or, or beluga whales, then we've, we've missed a distinction that God makes in his, in his creation. And then obviously in our world of the, today, the distinction between male and female, man and woman, is under complete assault, right? That, and, and, and I think you see not only the culture giving way to that, but you see far too many churches yielding to that. Uh, far too many churches yielding to the... And, and dear ones, there, there will, there, unless the Lord does something, there will come a day where it costs us dearly, I believe, to say what I'm saying right now. Uh, not only that the, there is a distinction, there is a difference, God-given difference between male and female, but that males are always males and females are always males. I mean, females are always females, no matter what they think. That, we're, that is not our decision. Uh, that, is, that is given, it is entrusted by God. Now, I'm not saying, and this is not the point of tonight, but I'm not saying that people who are wrestling with transgenderism, that they don't, they're not sensing anything. I'm not saying that any of them are necessarily maliciously lying, but I'm saying they, that, there is a, that gender dysphoria is actually a thing, but that our bodies and our souls, our spirits, they are made by God together. Uh, and that we cannot, uh, we, we do not get to decide those things for ourselves. I don't want to get off on, the, um, on that soapbox. But, 
But this, this, all, all of these things, if you begin to see all of these things play into this commandment, you shall not commit adultery. The distinction between uh, creator and cre- creation, the distinction between humanity and, um, and the rest of creation. Uh, and you, and because you see, you hear that argument as well, that, well, you know, whatever it is, you know, like Tanzanian frogs enter into homosexual relationships all the time, so people can too. I'm like, okay, that's your argument. Um, or that the, this certain, you know, entity, I don't know, like a hydra is non, non-gender and it can be, you know, it buds rather than procreates and so therefore people can, and I'm like, that's a, it's, those, are, those are just foolish arguments from the biological order, but it's leveling out, it's attempting to level out the distinction between humanity and, um, and the rest of creation. And so all of these things are they're at play in one, two, three. I have five words here in English. All of these things are at play when it says you shall not commit adultery. Um, <clears throat> but as we, as we kind of break from, I've been talking about worldview pieces, worldview components of this commandment. Um, I want to, it's taken forever. Uh, I, I want to kind of make a, maybe some of the broad applications of this. That adultery shows up. Um, not just in, hey, we have a man and a woman, and one or both of them enter into illicit relationships with other people, right? Adultery is, is, more, is, is deeper than that. It's more uh, insidious than that. Just as uh, you shall not murder implies more than simply, hey, don't go hit somebody in the head with an axe. Uh, but it also means that life is sacred and so that anything we do to take life cheaply, to treat life as though it does not matter, our lives included, and other people's lives as well, any anger that we reside in our heart, any maliciousness, any bitterness, resentment, that all these things are beginning to break that, that law. In the same way, Jesus takes that, you shall not commit adultery, and he says it's not just about this particular one thing. So you're saying, I've never, I've never had an illicit affair in that way, therefore I haven't broken this law. Well, let's, let's read what Jesus says. So that we can shatter our notions of self-righteousness and find righteousness in Jesus alone. That is the function of the law for us in one way. Matthew chapter 5, um, verse 27, Jesus says, this is the, the, ten, not ten commands, this is the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, you have heard it said, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent, and you could flip this, right? It's not just guys looking at women, but women looking at guys, right? So I know it's more. Anyways, I'll talk about that soon. Um, Everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And notice, like this is a general, he's not just speaking to married men. Right? He's speaking, I mean, his disciples are there, but also the crowd is over, the overlap of his teaching to his disciples is overflowing into the crowd. And so this is a, a very broad application of it. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. Drastic measures necessary. But that here we have 
Jesus taking what would be the, the narrow application. You've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. Obviously, is that true? But Jesus says, but it also applies to your heart. So, um, so there are, and this is one of the ways that our culture traffics, intentional language, traffics in, in, the, in the breaking of God's law. Because there, you, you can't even drive down the interstate, right, without something that is there beckoning you on a billboard somewhere or even on the radio uh, if you listen to certain channels <clears throat> that's beckoning you to regard another person as serviceable for your own passions, right? That they are there to serve your... And that, that is the essence that this breaking of a covenant relationship to step out even in heart, even in the privacy of a car or a house or wherever, that there's a stepping out. And again, like I said, it's not just uh, men beholding women. And right, we have, we have whole epidemics of, of the epidemic of, of I was talking, uh, of pornography. I was, I was in a group of pastors today. And, um, and one of the guys, uh, he, not presently, but he confessed that he had, he had been there. He had been in bondage to that. Um, and how and the Lord was, had brought him out of it, and so that and that's that's all over. And that's not just men; it's women as well. But that there, if there's a, a a leveraging of another person again for the sake of the passions, that this is breaking of of the law of God. And and what this what I'm what I'm trying to do one for us in this room is that it should begin to dis, disintegrate any self again any self righteousness. Uh, that we have any any idea that I'm good enough because we're not because the other thing that we need to see about the Ten Commandments is that they're all interlinked. We we think of them um, as a as kind of spread out constellation of law, but they're they're better thought of as a link in a chain. That when you when you break one, you begin to break the others. That when you when you break the you shall not commit adultery, you're actually beginning to break first table problems. Right, first, first table laws, because when I, when I begin to, if I were to conceive of a person in this way, I'm not only doing violence to my own heart, I'm doing violence to that person, but I'm also doing violence of the creator of, of us both. And so I'm having other gods before him. I'm breaking the first commandment. Um, you shall have no, no images, right? So that's a, there is a, a, um, a breaking of the second law. Uh, taking of the Lord's name in vain. And again, if, if you didn't hear that message, there, we always think about that one in terms of language, right? That I shouldn't use the Lord's name as an expletive. And you shouldn't. That is an application of it. But taking the Lord's name in vain is much deeper than that. Because you, Christian, have been baptized into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you have been named as one of His children. And when we walk in sin, we are bearing the name of the Lord. We continue to bear the name of the Lord, walking in a way, living in a way, speaking in a way that doesn't bring Him honor. So there's a, all right, we're violated number three. Uh, so we, we begin to see that they're all kind of, they're intertwined. It's not, and that's why when, when James talks about if you keep one point of the law, you've got to keep all of them. Yes, ma'am. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. Right, yeah. 
yeah, I serve in the sort of fleshly indulgence like that. I'm, I've got to serve my belly. And that's like the, what Paul says of the, uh, of the enemies of the cross in Philippians chapter 3, 19, right? Their, their God is their belly. Um, you know, serving, consuming and serving self for uh, the gratification of the flesh. And, and I don't, we're kind of bumping on time. Uh, but I read a chapter 5, part of chapter 5 of Ephesians about the nature of the marriage relationship. And this is what makes uh, adultery so uh, egregious, so, so painful, is that the, the preciousness of man and woman coming together in marriage, because it's, and I say this, I try to, every couple that I marry, um, in the sense that I, I officiate their marry, their marriage, <laughs> Every couple that I, I do their marriage counseling and I do their service, I try to remind them and even say it in the service that this is not about you. Ultimately and foundationally, it feels about like it's about you and it's, you should delight and you should rejoice. It's a wonderful day. But this is, uh, and what I try to say to people, you know, I, think I, I know I've done it here, uh, is that when, the, when these two are coming together, you're, it's the making of a window pane, Right? You have two pieces of the window that are coming together to put something in frame. And what is being put into frame is Jesus' love for his church and his church's adoration and respect for Christ. That there's a, there's a dim and there should be a visible picture. Uh, this is the ideal of marriage, right? If those of you who have been married, who are married, uh, you know that it is not always, it is, sometimes it is a... It is a very, it's like a Jackson Pollock, very messy thing. Uh, sometimes it's a Monet. Right? It's, a, it's more impressionistic. You need, to get, you need to step back from it a little bit. If you press in too close, it's like things aren't as they ought to be. Sometimes it's just a Rembrandt. And it's just a, this wonderful, wonderful thing. And there are seasons to it. But, but seeing that the, the, the being, the nature of marriage is that it is pointing to Jesus. And, and in this way... Uh, the way that we interact with our spouses and the way that we interact in our homes is actually uh, not only putting Jesus in frame, but it's also a, an operation of worship. Uh, and so, I, you know, I try to have that in the back of my head when, I, you know, I come home and I'm, I'm like, I'm about to hit, say, I'm say Sherman, hit the, the mute button on this thing. But, um, but not really. She, uh, but, when, you know, when I am come home or, or she, she say her breath comes home. And long day, and you're stressed out, and you're tired. You just want to sit down, and there's, you know, there's a I'm, there, probably when I go home tonight, you know, because I left the house like this. Uh, I was in a training all day, and I got home, and there were dishes in the sink, and I know that stresses her out. Me stresses her out, and so I know I'm probably unless anyways, I'm probably going to go home and do the dishes, even though I'm going to be really tired, uh, because my marriage isn't about me, you know. If it were about me, I'd be like, you know, whatever, I'm going to go to bed. Um, and that's not to say, hey, how great I am, because I could have a whole big list of all the ways that I didn't do that. Um, but here, that's this one example of, hey, my marriage is about him. Um, and so how am, I, how, am I, how am I leading and how am I serving and how are we? Any, and, and again, uh, that, is, that ought to be a challenge. That passage ought to be a challenge for husbands. Like that was read at my wedding. Uh, and it, it ought to be a challenge for wives. Um, and it ought to, ought to be a challenge... And even if we want to push broader, even should be a challenge into all of our relationships. But if we were to read, and I had plans to do this, and we don't have time to do it, but if you were to read the beginning of uh, Exodus, Ephesians chapter 5, um, you would begin to see the, the connection. Like he's, he begins talking about 
uh, sexual immorality in verse 3, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. And I think what he's beginning to do there is that it's really, and he doesn't use the language, but it, it is a, an application or even an exposition of uh, the law of God of you shall not commit adultery. And then he comes down and, and begins to apply it in the relationship of wives and husbands. Um, but, if I may, right, the third piece of this, right, the, the law should convict us. It reveals to us the standard of God. It should strip us of our self-righteousness, our morality, as though we might be able to save ourselves. All of us should feel a bit of a sting of conviction tonight or a realization that I've, at some point in my life I've broken that. Uh, but also, we, it doesn't leave us there. The law leads us to Jesus because Jesus has completely and perfectly fulfilled the law of God where we could not. That He is the only good one. He is the only righteous one. And so He took the burden. He took the, uh, the, the wrath of God due for my sin, for breaking that sin, that law, excuse me, that, that Jesus took the wrath for that and now I am transformed in the gospel. I'm, I'm able to believe that Jesus has removed my sin. It was placed upon the cross. And I've gotten His righteousness. And now, not only His righteousness, but His, the Holy Spirit to say, go and sin no more. Not that we can be perfect, but go and, and pursue holiness. Go and be righteous. Not for the sake of earning God's approval, but because you already have been approved in Jesus. Because you've already been accepted. Now live the life. Live the abundant life. And follow what God has given us in His law. That we shouldn't be scared of saying, I'm, I'm following the commands of Jesus. Right? That should not be. That's not moralism. Right? That's called the Christian life. It's not only about that, but that's a piece of it. Jesus said, if you love me, you're going to keep my commandments. That's not saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to love you. I'm, I'm, then I'm going to finally love you. But I have loved you, and therefore you love me. And this is the way, one of the ways that my love, Jesus says, one of the ways that his love is worked out in our lives is that when we begin to obey him, we begin to experience true life in him. So um, let me pray for us, and then we'll close up. Father, you're good to us. And we ask that you would take your word and um, plant it as seed in good soil, that it would bear fruit for your glory, that we would uh, walk through the, the usefulness of your law tonight, that your spirit would, would come and, and, and shepherd us through your standard and the conviction and the brokenness of our own sin, that we would be uh, reminded of our need of Christ but we would also not just be reminded of our need, that we would be reminded of the sufficiency of Jesus. That you are able to save, that you are our Savior, the Savior of the world. That everyone who calls upon the name of the, of the Lord Jesus shall be saved. And that we have done that, we've been brought into you, and now we are union to you and trusting in you, alive in you. And we pray that you would give us grace for our failures, but also that you would give us grace for obedience. To be holy as you are holy. And to rejoice in that. Lord, I thank you so much for your word and for tonight. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.